Well, I'm excited to be back with you, as I said, and uh, be able to pick back up in our study of the book of Genesis. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 8 today, if you want to go ahead and be turning there. Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 through 22 is primarily where we'll be. And the good news about that is that we've we're, we're coming through the flood. And, uh, and I mentioned as we began this story of the flood back in, in Genesis chapter 6 that that was a, a difficult thing because uh, it's, it's not a lot of happy thoughts and a lot of happy things to talk about as we come through the flood waters of Genesis 6 through 8. But now we come through and uh, the dry ground has appeared and we're going to read about God's remembrance of Noah in Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 through 22. And as we do, uh, we're going to look at the fact that God is a God of grace and a God of mercy, even in the midst of His judgment. And so let's read together Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 through 22, and then I'll lead us in a word of prayer and we'll get into the sermon. Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 through 22. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast Every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the face on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this hour knowing that you hold the words of truth, that you hold the words of life. Lord, your word created life. Your word calls floodwaters to come forth and the earth to be flooded and destroyed. And your your word also calls the winds and the mountains to come forth so that the waters are abated and your, your gracious remnant is saved. Father, we know also that your word calls forth this new creation that we see in Noah. This this new creation that comes out of the ark of salvation that you have provided. 
And as a result, they come forth and bring about a new creation that starts fresh and anew. And Lord, we know that in a much greater way, you have called us out. Out out from the ark of your son who brings us through the judgment of God to a new and beautiful world that is to come. And that one day when the trumpet sounds, you will call us out to be a part of that new creation that will know no end, where there will be no more violence and sin. So, Lord, in hope of that great day, we look at this story of Noah and we are reminded that there is a better day coming. There is a true new creation coming. So, Father, give us peace as we study from your word. Give us understanding. Give us confidence in our own salvation as we see the salvation that was brought about for Noah. Father, give us a reminder of the sacrifice of your son, which is the true and better sacrifice than that of Noah uh, and what he offered here in this story. Father, bless us now as we study from your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I know you, uh, you didn't miss the news this week of yet another senseless mass shooting that occurred up in Virginia Beach uh, as a, an apparent disgruntled uh, public employee at the city of Virginia Beach killed 12 people and, uh, and wounded four others before having a shootout with the police and ultimately being killed. These shootings never make sense. But this one particularly was strange to me because this man was apparently a well-educated and stable uh, person, in a stable position. He was a certified professional engineer in a local road department. But these random acts of violence are often motivated by an unbridled, uncontrolled rage. I think of the man who uh, was a former cameraman at the TV station. You might remember, I think it was also up in Virginia. And he just kind of ended up flying off the handle and killing the reporter and the camera crew that uh, had taken his place. Or I think of Dylan Ruth, who was motivated by racial hatred and killed churchgoers at a black church in Charleston during a midweek prayer service that they were holding. None of it makes any sense. And human rage is so often like that. In fact, most human anger is fickle and capricious. James says in James 1.20 that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are so easily unhinged, so quick to judge, so willing to assume the worst. And as a result of our own fickle angry nature, we tend to think of God in the same way. In fact, the ancient Mesopotamian cultures that surrounded the Israelites believed that that their gods were just fickle and angry just like regular humans were. They even believed in their own flood stories that the gods chose to flood the earth not because of the wickedness of man, but because men had become too noisy on the earth and they were waking them up from the God's naps. And so they decided to judge the earth because of the noisiness of men. Many have looked at the stories of the Old Testament and particularly the story of the flood that we've been going through and have come to the same conclusion about the God of the Bible. 
Mark Twain passed this very judgment on the God of the Bible when he wrote, To trust the God of the Bible is to trust an irascible, vindictive, fierce, and ever-fickle and changeful master. But the story of the flood, understood in its proper context, tells a quite different story. We've seen that God graciously creates a world that is beautiful and good. And He creates mankind with a special privilege. The privilege of bearing the image of God in this world. He gives dominion over... He gives this mankind dominion over His creation. And He provides for their every need. He gives them every fruit of the garden except for one. But in a terrible act of rebellion, mankind rejects the wisdom and goodness of God and chooses to live by their own terms, seeking knowledge apart from God. We've seen the result of that faithful act over and over again in the stories we've looked at as brother has killed his own brother, as the role of marriage has been distorted, and as the earth has become full of violence. And so God ultimately passes judgment on this broken humanity. In chapter 6, verse 5, He declares that every thought and intention of the heart of man is only evil continually. I don't know how you get more total than that. Every thought of the intention of man's heart is only evil continually. And that passage also tells us that God was sorry That he made man. That phrase there literally means that God's heart was broken over the corruption of the good creation that he had made. And yet, even with the totally corrupt humanity that is worthy of judgment, God chooses to show grace. The word used in Genesis chapter 6 is favor. He chooses to show favor to one man and his family. So he tells Noah how to build an ark. And not just that, but he chooses to save a remnant of all of creation. And he brings all of that remnant of creation to Noah to be saved. And then the floodwaters come. And everything that is not on the ark perishes in this terrible act of God's judgment. Now I want you to feel the weight of the judgment of God. Notice Genesis chapter 7, verses 19 through 24. Listen, just listen attentively as I read Genesis chapter 7, verses 19 through 24. It says in verse 19, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. 
And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Oh, church, weep over the judgment of God. Do not become callous to it. So often we read these stories and we read them more like fairy tales or like uh, uh, stories from an ancient and distant culture, more like myths than real stories. And we read them and we lose our sense of, of severity in the story. This is what the consequence of our rebellion looks like. The judgment of God is mighty and the judgment of God is complete. And yet, even in the weightiness of this judgment, there's good news. Notice chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1 begins with this beautiful phrase. But God remembered Noah. Oh, these are the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture. The two most beautiful words in all of Scripture are, but God. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 begins by saying, but God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 says, but God, who is rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God remembers Noah. When you read that God remembered Noah, be careful not to think that God somehow had forgotten him. You know, that's the way we take that word to mean that God was busy flooding the earth and he said oh I forgot about somebody and he went back and he remembered Noah but really the idea of God's remembrance is language that is common to the idea of God's covenant with his people in Genesis chapter 19 verse 29 God saves Lot from the judgment of Sodom because it says he remembered his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, God enables Rachel to conceive because it says he remembered his promise to Jacob. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, God calls Moses to go back and to save the people of Israel because it says he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we see in the Bible is that God never forgets his promises. God always remembers His covenant with His people. And that's good news for us because God remembers us too. We who have trusted in Jesus Christ are remembered by God. Even in the midst of His judgment on this world. So God causes the waters to subside and He brings Noah to a safe place. And then God calls Noah and the animals out of the ark. And God gives, the, gives Noah and the remnant of his creation a, the same command that he gave Adam and Eve in the beginning. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God begins the work of renewing his creation after he has judged it. And then we see in verse 20 of chapter 8 that as soon as Noah comes out of the ark, he builds an altar. 
And he begins to offer sacrifices of every clean animal that he has taken into the ark. And it says in verse 21 that God smelled the aroma of that sacrifice and it pleased him. The idea of this pleasing aroma is the idea of resting satisfaction. It's kind of like uh, my, my daughter picks at me. Apparently there's this new phrase that kids are using now, and I've heard it on TV now, this phrase called hangry. Have y'all heard the phrase hangry? The he- phrase hangry, hangry is the combination of hungry and angry. And people have been hangry for generations. This isn't something new. But it's the idea that you've passed the point of being hungry, and now you're so hungry that you're angry about being hungry. So you're hangry. You get it, right? And so, uh, so you know that idea of when you're hangry and you're uh, angered by this desire that you have for food, and then you walk into a restaurant or you walk into the kitchen and there's that smell of, you might be hangry right now, so I'm sorry if this happens, but you, you walk into the kitchen and there's that smell of fried chicken or that smell of a, a grilled steak sitting on the plate waiting for you. And all of a sudden, there's that satisfaction. Instead of being angry about the need that you have, you now rest. You now relax because you know that there's food there. Now, I use that illustration hesitantly because God isn't hungry. He's not sitting there waiting on a sacrifice and ready to eat. But I want you to get the idea of this resting satisfaction. You see, God has been at work. He's been at work judging the earth. And He's been at work restoring the earth as He's caused the waters to subside. But what is it that causes God to rest from His work? What is it that causes God, even though men are still sinful, even though He pronounces that men are still... uh, Uh, corrupt in their heart? What is it that causes him to promise that he will no more flood the earth in judgment? What is it that causes God to rest from his wrath? It is a sacrifice offered up by a righteous man that causes God to rest from his wrath. And yet, even in his promise... God reveals that there is something that is still broken about mankind. Man's heart is still corrupt. Noah and his sons are still sinners. We've yet to come to the stories of the Tower of Babel or the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah or Abraham's sin with Hagar or the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. And we know that as the story progresses, we find that God's people need sacrifices to abate the wrath of God. But those sacrifices were never enough. In fact, the people eventually assumed that the sacrifices were like good luck charms that they could wave in front of God to keep Him satisfied and happy. But God tells them in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. The sacrifices of Israel and really the sacrifices of all of the Old Testament 
were all reminders of something that was to come. They all pointed forward, not back. After all, how could the blood of a bird or a goat pay for the sins of a man? But then, Jesus came to an Israel that was submerged in the judgment of God. They had lingered under exile. They had lingered under the continued judgment of God for over 400 years. But with Jesus, God announces from heaven at His baptism, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus as the only true righteous man offers himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And John agrees, saying in 1 John 4, 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God and brings us into His eternal rest. Friend, do not set yourself up as judge over God. So many, so many look at the story of the flood and declare, that's not my God. There's no way my God would do something like that. Yet, this is the God of the universe whether you like it or not. This God judges righteously, and He will judge your sin in righteousness as well. The only way to escape this judgment is through the sacrifice that Jesus has offered for you. Trust in Him and be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. Brothers and sisters, because we are now in Christ, We are a part of that fragrant sacrifice that satisfies God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-15, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. You see, our lives, as we live for Christ in this world, Paul says, is like a fragrance. It's like a fragrance of righteousness, like a sacrifice that is being given to the world, for the world. And so when we live righteous lives in front of this fallen world, we, like Noah, give a sacrifice back to God of an obedient life and a life that is secured through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we're called, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're called to offer up our bodies a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable act of worship. So as we leave this place today, we leave as little sacrifices. Our bodies, our lives go out into this world and exemplify a life that has died to the world and now lives for Christ. We, like Noah, have been brought through the floodwaters. 
and now stand as examples of a new creation who is coming to be through the work of our church and through the work of the church in the world. So will you today go out as those new sacrifices, ready to live and ready even to die for the sake of the truth of this new kingdom that has come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Noah and for the promise of the sacrifice that was to come that would satisfy the wrath of God. Lord, we take our calling in this world seriously as we are called to be a fragrant offering of, of our obedience to you in this world. Father, bless us as we go out. May we serve you with joyful hearts, knowing that you have ransomed us through the work of your Son. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.